welcome to the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. This podcast is devoted to helping increase your daily exposure to God's Word with a short scripture reading and brief commentary on key ideas, themes, and theology in each chapter. Now please join your host, Dave Jenkins, for today's episode. Well, welcome back to the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. My name is Dave, and today is January 14th, and today we're going to look at uh, Genesis 14. Uh, Just as a reminder, the format for this show is every day I read one chapter, and then I offer a brief explanation of key ideas, themes, and the theology in the chapter very briefly. My goal is to get you in God's Word for 5 to 20 minutes every day. Well, let's get started with our reading today from Genesis 14. And let's hear what Genesis 14 has to say to us. In the days of Amphrol, king of Sinar, Ariax, king of Elisor, Ketelamar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goan. These kings made war with Berea, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adam, Shembar, king of Zoobium, and the king of Bala, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces with in the valley of Sidon, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Shalandamor, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year of Chalamador, and the kings who were with him came and defeated Rephraim and Astaroth, Kothkiriam, and the Horiites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. And then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazan Tamar. And then the king of Tamar, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adam, the king of Zelbium, and the king of Bala, that is Zor, went out. And they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Cherliamar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goam, Amphrol, king of Shinar, and Ariat, king of Elisar, four kings against five. And now the valley of Siddim was, was full of bitum pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. And some fell into them, and the rest uh, fled to the hill country. And so the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. And then the one who escaped came, and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshkel and of Aner. These were the allies of Abram. And when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit of them as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobia, north of Damascus. And then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. And after his return from the defeat of Chedolomar and the kings who were with him, the kings of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. 
But Abram said to the kings of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a, a, a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men uh, have eaten and then share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. Now, in this uh, section, in this chapter, Abram rescues Lot. After separating from Abram and settling in Sodom, Lot is taken captive by an alliance of four kings who invade the Jordan Valley and defeat a local confederation of five kings. And when Abram learns of his nephew's abduction from Sodom, he marshals a small force and after pursuing the invaders northward, he successfully recovers Lot and a large quantity of plunder. Abram's subsequent encounter with the kings of Sodom and Salem it provides an interesting insight into the, his future aspiration in light of the promises of God given to him. And although Abraham can compete militarily against powerful kings, he rejects the use of power to achieve God's purposes. And thus he does not use force to take control of the land of Canaan. This section falls into three parts. In verses 1 through 12, we see the events leading to Lot's abduction. And second, in verses 13 through 16, we see Lot's rescue by Abram. In verses 17 through 24, we discover Abram's meeting with the kings of Sodom and Salem. Now, in the first 13 verses of this of this chapter, we are given a brief summary that introduces the revival of the alliance of the kings. And these alliances, we must understand, they're common and they're a recurring aspect of politics in the ancient Near East. The kings mentioned here have not been identified in sources outside of Scripture, but their names correspond with known names or name types appropriate to regions from which they may have come. Shiner is from Babylonia. The location of Eleazar is uncertain, although the king's name, Erech, is found in texts from the ancient cities of Mare and Nuzi, and so this might suggest that Elsar is in northern Mesopotamia. Elam was an ancient state lying to the east of southern Babylonia. Title is possibly a Hittite name. Goam in Hebrew means nations. Zoar probably lays at the southern edge of the valley of Jericho. In verse 3, the salt sea is the dead sea. In verse 4, after 12 years of subjection, the kings of the Jordan Valley gained independence in one year. In verses 5 through 7, under the leadership of Chaleomir, the invading kings display their military might by defeating a number of different tribal groups. Though the six locations here, they reveal that the invaders moved southward along the king's highway in the Transjordan as far as the Gulf of Agabia before turning northward, eventually arriving at Hazan Tamar in verse 7, also known as Engedi. In verses 8 through 11, we learn about the five kings of the Jordan Valley failing to repel the alliance of the eastern kings. And this led to the result of the cities of Samadim and Gomorrah are under plunder. Verse 12, this parallels a general report that we see in verse 11 of this chapter recording the abduction of Lot and his possessions from Sodom. In verses 13 through 17, we, do, we see the phrase Abram the Hebrew. This is the first occurrence of the term Hebrew in the Bible, and it's likely used here to denote the ethnicity of Abram. Dan is to be identified with Del Dan, a site extremely excavated since the 1960s. A large and even a significant settlement has been uncovered here from the Middle Bronze Age 
2500 to 1500 BC. A monumental mud brick arch gateway was found from this time. It is the earliest of its kind ever found. In verse 14, what we see is trained men. The Hebrew word for trained men is only found here in the Old Testament. And the context implies that they may have had some military training. Verse 15, this was a nighttime assault. It enabled Abram's forces to overcome their opponents who flee northward. In verses 17 through 24, by contrasting Abram's reactions to the kings of Sodom and Salem, this passage underscores his reliance on God rather than on the military might in order to gain possession of Canaan. And although God has promised the land to Abram, the patriarch will not adopt violent strategies in order to obtain it. Verse 17, the kings of Sodom greet Abram on his return. And now the valley of Shabbat, also known as the king's valley, it lays to the east of Jerusalem. Verse 18, Melchizedek, it means king of righteousness, and it generally, provi- generally provides a meal for the returning victors. Salem is possibly a shortened version of Jerusalem, like in Psalm uh, 76.2, and it's related to Shalom, the Hebrew word for peace. Melchizedek was a priest of God Most High. And although very little is known about Melchizedek, he provides an interesting example of a priest king linked to Jerusalem. There appears to have been an expectation that the latter kings of Jerusalem should resemble the king. The book of Hebrews presents Jesus Christ from the royal line of David as belonging to the order of Melchizedek and thereby superior to the Levitical priests in Hebrews 5, 5 through 10 and Hebrews 6, 20 through 7, 17. God most high in Hebrew is El Elyon El, El being the common Semitic term for God. And to this is added the attribute Elyon, meaning God most high. And so elsewhere in Genesis, other attributes are added, such as El, such as in Genesis 16:13, God of seeing. In Genesis 17:1, God Almighty translated El Shaddai in Genesis 21:13. Everlasting God translates El Elam. And these differences, they highlight different aspects of God's nature and his character. Genesis 14, 19-20. Melchizedek's blessing, it attributes Abram's victory to the power of God. And by giving Melchizedek a tenth of everything, that's a tithe. And, and do, Abram doing this, it affirms the truthfulness of Melchizedek's words. Possessor of heaven and earth. And although God has created the whole earth to be his temple, Genesis reveals God's ownership of the earth is rejected by those who do not obey the Lord. And in light of this, Melchizedek's acknowledgement of God's authority over the earth is noteworthy. In marked contrast to Melchizedek's blessing, what we see with the King Salem's remarks are expressing no gratitude at all. He dishonors Abraham, and this is an ominous sign. In light of Genesis 12:3, I will curse. Verses 22 through 24, Abram's rejection of the other made by King Sodom, it powerfully affirms that he is depending on God and not on human uh, kings or their gifts in order to become a great nation and acquire a great name. The Lord God Most High, by prefixing the divine name Yahweh, translated Lord to Elion, God Most High, Abram indicates that Yahweh and El Elion are one and the same deity. Now, the priesthood of Israel as an office limited it to Aaron and the tribe of Levi. It came to an end with the advent of Christ and his offspring of it to all people, as we see in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. 
And yet that does not mean unique priestly offices for a select anointed individual uh, passed away entirely. There remains a priesthood in the order of Melchizedek where Jesus sits forever as our great high priest, according to Hebrews 7. What, what we see in Genesis 14, 17 through 20, it contains the only substantive historical information we have on this character. As all of the other biblical references to Melchizedek look to the events described in this text in order to make a theological point about his priesthood. Well, it's important first to see that Melchizedek, unlike later kings of Israel, held the offices of priest and king simultaneously. Kings such as David might have performed some priestly functions on occasion, such as in 2 Samuel 6, 12-15. But no old covenant king was also an appointed priest. Melchizedek, on the other hand, was a priest king, and he was able to exercise the function of both offices at the same time. And second, there is great significance to Melchizedek's name it, because it comes from the Hebrew words for king, Melech, and righteousness, Zedek. And Melchizedek was a king of righteousness worthy to pronounce the blessing of God on Abraham at this point in the history of the Lord's unfolding covenant of salvation to his people. And being that he was king of Salem or Jerusalem, as we see in, in Genesis 14:18, it is entirely appropriate that he should serve as a model for the great priest king who now rules on the throne of David that was first established in Jerusalem, according to Luke 1, 26 through 33. And finally, the gift of bread and wine to Abram in Genesis 14:18 it reveals the great generosity of Melchizedek, which is itself a model for all godly leaders. In a day and age when only kings ate a regular diet of bread and wine, the distribution of loaves and the fruit of the vine to Abram was a generous expression of the king's care for the patriarch. Such generosity marks Christ and all those who pattern their lives after his way of giving abundantly to his people. John Calvin has this, the same person, therefore, who is constituted the only and eternal priest in order that he might reconcile us to God and who, having made expiation, might intercede for us, is also a king of infinite power to secure our salvation and to protect us by his guardian care. That which was true of Melchizedek is even more true of Christ Jesus, and for that we must be grateful." Following Carolandabur's defeat, the ruler of Sodom and the king of Salem uh, come out to meet the victorious Abraham. What we see in Genesis 14, it focuses on the patriarch encounter with Melchizedek, a vital figure we must understand as we just talked about, but even more need to understand, he is vital to understand biblical theology. And yet there's not much to know about him. Uh, there are several things that we need to know about Melchizedek. As we mentioned, his name is related to the Hebrew words for king, melech, and righteousness, zedek, alluding to his holy character and his fidelity to God. Salem is an ancient name for the city of Jerusalem and is itself connected uh, to the Hebrew term for peace or shalom. All this prepares the reader to receive Melchizedek favorably, and his encounter with Abraham, it bears out this evaluation. And furthermore, these truths are picked up in the New Testament as, we, as we're going to look at and we're going to discuss today. Now, notice how Melchizedek incorporates the office of pre, a prophet and priest and king in his life. He is king of Salem and priest of God Most High in Genesis 14, 18. He speaks the Lord's word to Abraham when he blesses the patriarch in verses 19 through 20 in Genesis 14, inferring is a prophetic rule. This threefold office is also seen in David's kingship 
And and we're going to talk about this as we go through the word of the Lord uh, in Scripture on this podcast. And now, even though Abram had done little for Melchizedek, his city-state is not among the ones ransacked by Calamander. The king of Salem comes out to offer the patriarch and his men refreshment in verse 18 of Genesis 14. Bread and wine, the food and drink that Melchizedek sets forth, were staples of his royal diet and thus showing the king's generosity and the king's faithfulness to fulfill his promise to Abraham given in Genesis 12, 1-3. Now, Melchizedek's blessing, it confirms that the Lord was indeed on Abraham's side. The patriarch's reception of that gift directly identifying the one true God with Melchizedek's Lord. Abraham singles his acceptance of the blessing by favoring the king of Salem with a tithe, providing an example to later generations that supporting those servants who equip and bless God's people is a part of true worship, as we see in Numbers 18 and 1 Timothy 5, 17-18. Now, Abram's uh, tithe to the king of Salem, it's illustrative of what uh, the people of God must do to the, in the kingdom of God. So review your finances today and look at how you schedule your time. Consider giving more of your time and money to the work of the church, uh, not because out of duty or obligation, but because of the grace of God that you received, as we see in uh, 2 Corinthians 8. And also try to think of an individual who has blessed you with friendship, with guidance, or even some, uh, some kind of material benefit. Make sure that you find a way to express your gratitude to that person if you haven't already. And, and let's conclude our time considering this. Uh, you know, a wealthy man once became frustrated with his elder's refusal to follow his advice for running the church more efficiently. During the capital campaign for a new sanctuary, other members of the church were greatly impressed by his generous offer to fund the entire project. Their excitement turned to dismay when the elders rejected this gift, but the leaders feared he would use his philanthropy to influence the congregation unduly. Well, in Genesis 18, Abram, for similar reasons that I just gave, he rejects a proposal from the king of Sodom that he keep the booty from a successful raid. The scene is depicted in our in our chapter, in specifically in Genesis 14, 21 through 24. It's vital for grasping the meaning of this chapter as a whole, and it reveals what is most important to God in the those days of mighty kings. Now, the king of Sodom is contrasted with the king of Salem in these verses, thus accentuating the faithfulness of Salem's ruler. Sodom's regent offers to share the spoils from the battle with Abraham, and unlike Melchizedek, he brings no blessing with him. Now, if Abram were to accept this offer, the king would enhance his prestige, claiming that he enriched the patriarch. The fate that befell Sodom confirms his wicked motivations. Plainly, it would have been wrong of Abram to accept the king's offer. For one thing, it would have threatened the Lord's promise to make Abraham's name greater. John uh, Calvin perceptibly remarks that if Abraham had not refused the spoils due to him, others would falsely accuse him of using the rescue of Lot as a pretense to get rich. And that is, secondly, to accept plunder from a defeated and even a jealous king would have taken glory from God. Now, the Lord promised to reward Abraham in Genesis 12, 1-3, and, and though he can do so through men, Abraham knew that he had not chosen to use the king of Sodom for that purpose. Instead of attributing victory to Abraham, the Lord's man, the king greeted him with an ungrateful demand, grasping for his own glory and influence, something uh, God-fearers do not do, according to 1 Thessalonians 2, 5-6. 
And we can say, in refusing Sodom's offer, Abram testified of the Lord's mighty power and left no doubt whose hand brought the triumph, as we see in Deuteronomy 20, verse 4. Matthew Henry comments on all of this, saying, The people of God must, for their credit's sake, take heed of doing anything that looks wicked or mercenary, or that devours or covetousness and self-seeking. That is, appearances can be deceiving. We must take care not to accept gifts given under false pretenses or which might bring reproach to the name of Christ. That is, be wise when it comes to accepting presents or gifts, and do not give gifts in order to exercise control or over others. I want to thank you for listening or watching today's episode of the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. My name is Dave, and until tomorrow, may God bless you and keep Thank you for listening to today's episode of Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to also like, subscribe, or follow Servants of Grace on Facebook, Instagram, X, or YouTube. We appreciate your support.